0: Great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you would open with me now to Book of Romans, Chapter 7. Romans, Chapter 7, as we continue our study through this epistle, now in the seventh chapter, picking up in verse 1 with a message entitled, The Purpose of the Law. Romans 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit To God, shall we pray together? Father, as we approach this passage this morning, we do ask for your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into the understanding of the purpose of the law as we seek to live under grace. Lord, give us insight today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul addresses the subject of the law of God. In fact, out of the 77 times that the word law is used in the epistle to the Romans, 22 of those times are found here in chapter 7. Eight times in the first six verses. There were those who would be reading this epistle, Paul's Jewish readers, and they would question, have objections to his teaching on the grace of God versus the law of God. It was back in Romans chapter 3 in verse 20 that Paul said, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. To put it another way, you can't be made righteous in the sight of God by keeping the Ten Commandments because you'd have to keep them perfectly and no one can. So you can't be Justified by the law. Then in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said that we are not under the law, but under grace. The law of God, which is also referred to in scripture as the statutes, the oracles, the commandments of God, were vitally important to the Jews. Do you remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, after Moses had been given the law, he said to the nation of Israel in chapter 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses told the people, this law that I'm giving you, I want you to talk about it when you're walking on the road. I want you to teach these to your children. He even said, I want you to bind it on your hand. I want you to have it on your forehead. I want you to have it on the doorpost of your home. That is why even in Jewish culture today, you'll see the Orthodox Jews with their phylacteries wrapped around their hand. The law is contained inside of it. They'll have the phylactery around their head, and the law is inside that little box. And on the side of their door, you'll see the little mezuzah. They touch it when they come into their house. The law of God meant everything to them. In Joshua chapter 1, in verse 8, when Joshua took over from Moses, this is what he was instructed to do. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, and you will observe to do all that is written in it, for, when, for it will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. When would he have good success? When he was taking heed to the law of God, thinking about it, meditating on it, reading it. It was a priority. David also commented on the blessing of the law. In Psalm 19, this is what David said. He said the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul the testimony of the Lord it's sure making wise the simple the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandments of the Lord are pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord it's clean enduring forever the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than fine gold or much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is by the law, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. You get the idea of the importance that the law played in the life of the Jewish people. Now the problem was over time the Jews developed a misinterpretation of the law and its purpose. They came to believe, and even many of the rabbis taught that an individual's obedience to the law of God provided the way of salvation. That if you would keep the law, you could be saved. If you keep the law you could be justified. The religious leaders often accused Jesus in his ministry of violating the law of God. But Jesus responded to their accusations, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and he said, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And certainly Jesus did fulfill the law both in his life and in his death. But to help his readers who had objections and misunderstandings understand and comprehend our connection to the law of God, though we are under grace, Paul points out several things. Number one, through the work of Christ on the cross, we have been delivered from the penalty of the law. Look at what it says. Paul tells us here in verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law. Here in chapter 7, what Paul does is he uses an illustration of marital law to demonstrate what the believer's relationship to the law is now that we are in Christ. When a husband and a wife are married, it is meant to be for life. When they stand there and they take their vows of love and faithfulness before God and this company, they are pledging their love, they're pledging their commitment, and often every time that I ever do a wedding ceremony, and I have done multitudes of them, what everybody says or what I have them repeat, every ceremony I've ever done, right here, until death do us part. That is all, that's that's the contractual agreement, until death do us part. In other words, when a couple says that during their marriage ceremony, they're saying that they are bound together only to be separated by death. And whether that was Roman law or whether it was Jewish law, the woman was bound to her husband as long as they lived. That is, unless her husband died. Then she wouldn't be bound any longer to that contract or the law of marriage. Now, side note here. Keep this in mind. Some people get confused. Paul is not, I repeat not talking about marriage and divorce in this passage. Jesus addressed that subject in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five verses thirty one to thirty four and in Matthew chapter nineteen, and you can read about it there paul's point in this context of scripture here it is: Death cancels contracts that's very simple: death you can't have a contract with somebody who's not alive, to have a contract with. It dies. If the person dies, there is no more contract. If a woman, Paul says also, was to marry another man while married to her husband, she'd be breaking the law, and she'd be called an adulteress. But again, if her husband passes away, then she's able to marry another without violating any law because death has canceled out the contract. That's the illustration presented. Well, what's the application? The question is, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us in our relationship to the law of God? Here's the application. Pay close attention here, folks. There's some deep waters this morning. Notice in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Understand the illustration. You ready? The husband in the illustration represented the law. The wife in the illustration represents the believer, and death canceled out the contract between the couple, which in turn provided a new opportunity for a new marital relationship. Again, at first reading, you might think Paul is confused. He made an error within the analogy because within the analogy, he said if the husband dies, which represented the law. But now he implies that it's actually the wife that dies. Why did he reverse the analogy? Paul altered the analogy because the law of God cannot die. God's law remains. The word of the Lord endures forever. Paul says in the very next verse that we as believers are the ones who actually died to the law. The law doesn't die, we die. What does Paul mean? We died, I'm alive right now. What is he talking about? Pay attention, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about something that is spiritual. Folks, when you study through the scriptures and you come across a passage that is difficult to understand, like this one, do yourself a favor and compare this translation to other translations. And often what will happen is it will open up the passage for you and it'll make a whole lot more sense. I'm going to do that for you now. New living translation of this verse. Listen to what it says. So this is the point. Thank you. This is the point. The law no longer holds you in its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. And now you are united with the one, that is Christ, who was raised from the dead. As a result, you can produce good fruit, that is, good deeds, for God does that help you understand the passage we just read? I hope it does. If not, go to the amplified. But this is something that will hopefully give you clarification. Folks, listen, when the Bible says that we have been crucified with Christ, it doesn't mean that we were physically there in 30 something AD nailed to a cross next to Jesus on the day he died. However, spiritually we were. It was our sin That Jesus was dying for our sin was represented there at Calvary he who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him the Bible says he died not for his sin he was dying for our sin so when he died with our sin upon him in a sense we died with him the old person, the old you, the sinful life back there at Calvary, when he died, we died. That is when we receive what he's done, when we accept the finished work on the cross. It's speaking of something spiritual. We recognize, we admit that the old, sinful, depraved life was crucified with Christ. We died. The law that condemned us in our sin no longer has a hold on us because death cancels the contract when we were alive in the flesh we were i mean we were bound to the law but when we died with Christ the contract's broken that person's dead we're a brand new person the law has no hold on us any longer in other words when it, the bible says that we were also raised with Christ it doesn't mean that we were physically there On Easter Sunday morning when Jesus came out of the tomb, we weren't there physically, but spiritually we have been raised with Christ, and now we have a new life in him. Paul put it this way in writing to the Galatians. In chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it's a cross-reference, which supports what we're talking about. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In writing to the Colossians, Paul puts it this way. I love this, verse 14 of chapter 2 in Colossians. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it. To the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. How freeing it is this morning, how liberating it is today to know that we don't have to try to earn God's favor or his salvation through our own efforts of keeping the law of God because we could never accomplish it unless we could keep the law perfectly and no one can. We're incapable. Jesus at the cross did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He fulfilled the law with his life And he fulfilled the payment that the law demanded through his death. And now, because we are in Christ, we are dead to the law as a means of righteousness. And a new opportunity has opened up for us to be married to another. We are, the Bible says, the bride of Christ. A new relationship has opened up. That one Died. That person doesn't even exist. This is, I'm brand new. I'm in a new relationship with the Savior that loves me and gave Himself for me. In verses five and six, what Paul does, he now says it again, but it's almost like he comes from another angle, he says it a different way. So that those who are reading it, here's another understanding of what he just said. Like he just reiterates it. That's what good teaching is. You reiterate what you just said from another angle so that you can see it and understand it. Look at what he says in verse 5. For when we were, that is past tense, in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now... Present tense, we've been delivered from the law. There it is. We've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Paul reminds his readers of the life that they had before Christ. And he refers to it by saying, when you were, past tense, in the flesh. What does that mean? used 147 times in the New Testament, the flesh. You hear people say, I'm here, in the flesh. They're talking about their physical appearance being there. Oh my goodness, is that my flesh? Talking about their skin. That's not what the Bible's talking about here. When the Bible refers to our relationship outside of God as in the flesh, what it means is something moral and ethical, something in a spiritual sense that describes the outlook of mankind which was continually oriented towards self, prone to sin, opposed to God and his purposes, pursues our own ends, self-sufficient, independent of God. It includes the entire being. That's what it means to be in the flesh. We were dominated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things had a grip on us. We lived for the flesh, for the appetites of the flesh, and sought to satisfy those every chance that we had. That's what it's like before Christ. You are in The flesh. But when you die with Christ, that flesh life is crucified with him so that it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you and the life that you now live. You live by faith in the Son of God. Christ is living his life through you because the old you died. Do you understand? That's what Paul is emphasizing here. It's great news. And now... Now that we've been delivered from the law, it says the law constantly held us down. That's what the law does. Because when you look at the law, you realize, I can't keep it. I can't achieve this. And what that does is it holds me down. But when Christ delivered me from the law, I am free. And now I serve the Lord because I love the Lord. I don't serve him because I feel like I have to or I'm trying to. To earn his favor, I have his favor. And thus I serve him, motivated by love for him. What a difference that makes. Serving the Lord based upon the law versus serving the Lord because of love. It makes all the difference in the world. You've been delivered, and now that you've been delivered, you are to serve the Lord in the newness of the Spirit. Let me ask you a question before we continue. Are you serving the Lord in the newness of the Spirit today? Amen? That's good news. It's just a question. It's rhetorical. <laughs> but perhaps, if, has your service become more of a responsibility than it is a response? Are you considering your service for Jesus? Ah, oh, such a burden. i got to serve the Lord. Or do you see it as a blessing? And There is a difference. Following his statements that the Christian who is born again is dead to the law, has been delivered from the grip of the law, Paul's Jewish readers, they still had questions. And the question was this, Paul, if you're saying that as a Christian we're not under the law, but we're under grace, that we're dead to the law, that we've been delivered from the law, then pray tell, why do we have it? What is the purpose of the law? That's a good question. Paul's going to answer it. He clarifies the purpose of the law and how it affects us. The law is holy. It comes from God. The law is just. It is right. It is perfect. It is good. So what is the purpose of the law in the life of the believer? Well, let's look at verse 7. He asks another rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Or what am I saying to you? Is the law sin? Am I saying the law is sinful when I write this? He answers his own question by saying, certainly not. Don't even think that way. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand. The law is good. It is perfect. It's the straight line next to the crookedness of humanity. It's good. It's God's word. It's God's law. It converts the soul. So what's the purpose of the law? Here's the first purpose of the law. The law, first of all, reveals sin. Look at it says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness. I wouldn't know what it was to covet unless the law said, you shall not covet. The law reveals sin. It was in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that Paul wrote, through the law came the knowledge of sin. In Romans 4, 15, He said, where there is no law, there's no violation. In Romans 5.13, where there is no law, sin's not imputed. In other words, sin without a law has no existence. If I don't know that there is a law against what I'm doing... Then how can you hold me accountable for doing something when there's no standard that's been given? I'm innocent if there's no law. I haven't broken any law because there isn't a law. However, if there is a law and I've broken it, then I've violated the law. You understand? Let me explain it another way. Let's say after church today you and I, we're going to go play tennis. I don't play tennis, but this is an illustration. We're going to go play tennis. And as we're playing tennis, you know, we start out, we're just having fun. We're just hitting the ball back and forth. You know, you're letting it bounce five times on your side before you get to it. I'm letting it bounce like 10 times before I get to it. And then like my kids used to do when they were little, they would see how far they could hit the ball out of the court. Look at that, I hit it so far. Yeah, this is really fun. You know, we're not playing according to the rules. But then, then I say, all right, enough playing around. Let me show you what the rules are. See those lines right there? They're not just painted in the ground for nothing. There is a reason. And you can't let it bounce, you know, two, three, four times before you hit it back. One bounce and hit it back. If it goes outside the line, you violated the law. No more love, love. I score. You understand? This is what we're going to do. No more love on this court. It's on, it's real. So that if you go outside the line, if you, you know, hit it into the net, if you pick it up with your hand and then, no, no, you lost a point, you broke the rules, you know what the rules are, you violated it, you're at fault. In other words, when the law of God is given, now I know uh, I'm at fault. I violated the law. The law reveals sin. You wouldn't know that it was sin unless the law was there. Listen, if you're driving down the freeway 100 miles an hour, then you don't know, and you, you blow by the sign that says the speed limit's 70. It is 70, is it right? Is it 70? <laughs> I don't know, you were driving too fast. So you blew right by it. And then the cop pulls you over. You're going 100. And you see those lights in the the rear view. And you're like, oh, you pray like you've never prayed in your life. You're praying in tongues. I mean, you're praying in your prayer language. You suddenly it's like I just got filled with the Spirit right now. You pull over. You're like, oh Jesus, please, I'm so sorry. You know what am I going to say? And you know you have no excuse. You violated the law. A ticket is coming, and you know that it's going to happen. I'm I'm not talking about experience. I'm talking about other people I've observed as I drove by. Man, that's really sad for them. No, I've actually experienced this. It's the worst feeling ever. And you sit there, and and you know what it's like. You violated the law, and you've broken it, and it's such a burden, and you just, oh, I'm busted. But you wouldn't have known there was a law if the sign wasn't posted. No law, I'm just driving, you know, as fast as I want to go. But you've broken the law. So the law, what's the point? It reveals sin. That's what the law does. Ah, second thing the law does. Paul says it actually can activate sin. How so? Look what it says, verse 8. But sin takes the opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was once alive without the law. I was fine. There was no law. I had no problem. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. When Paul says that sin took the opportunity when it saw the commandment. The word opportunity means the starting point, the base of operations. The sinful nature used the law as a catalyst, as a lever to activate sin and carry it out. Sin uses the law of God or God's commands as a beachhead from where it can launch its sinful activity. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. The problem is with me. The problem is with you and our sinful, fleshly nature. We see something that's prohibited, and we wonder why. Why do they say, I can't do that? I'm going to do it. You know, and suddenly the flesh wants to do what it's not supposed to do. St. Augustine wrote about this in his confessions. I thought it was interesting. Here's what he said. He talks about when he was a kid. And he wrote, there was a pear tree that was near our vineyard, filled with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry the spoils away. We took huge loads of pears, not to eat them for ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it wasn't the pears that was the thing that my wretched soul coveted. I had plenty better at home. He said, I picked them simply in order to become a thief. And the only feast that I got was the feast of iniquity, and I enjoyed it, he said, to the full. What was it that I loved in the theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, who was a prisoner under the rules, might have maimed the counterfeit freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence? And then he said this, the desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. In his flesh, he realized, that says don't do that. I'm going to do that because I want to do that. Why can't I do that? You can't tell me. And so the fact that he could do something and try to get away with it incited him. The law was good. It's perfect. He was the problem. You know, when I was growing up, we used to skateboard Everywhere, everywhere. And this was back in the day when your parents would say to you, "Hey listen, be home before dark." I mean, you can't say that to your kids now. But back then, they would say, "Be home. this was in the morning." The parent would say, "We'll see, make sure you're home when the street light, you don't be late." And here's a dime. They used to, a dime? If you get in trouble? Go to a pay phone. Young people, there were phones that you could put a dime in and call your mom to come pick you up. If you didn't have a dime, collect call. Will you receive a collect call? You better not be calling me collect. I am not, you know, mom. I... Anyways, that's, how, that's what would happen. So we would skateboard miles away from our house. They didn't know where we were, except we just had to be home before dark. And interesting there were these, this was before they had skate parks everywhere. They didn't have that growing up. We would have gotten out of a lot of trouble had, it's their fault. No, I'm justifying it. But on the side of the freeway, they have these large, well, it's like a ditch. And if you sweep it out, we would carry brooms with us. <laughs> Two miles from the house, with it, like, where are you going with that broom? It's going to sweep. You know, really? Really? So we'd take these brooms and we'd sweep out the ditch and get the water all dried out. Why? So we could skateboard inside it. There was a sign that said, violators will be prosecuted. Whatever. You know, we went in to the ditch. Why did we go in there? Because they said we couldn't. And we said, oh, yes, we can. And we did. I mean, again, I died. That person died. I've been resurrected with Christ. I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm, you know, I'm washed in the blood of the lamb. But, but then, you just keep an eye out for the cops. If you saw the cops, do get out, get out, there's a cop coming, get out. Hit the deck, you know, and we had signals. And Anyway, I'm saying to you, there was something within us that wanted to sin because it said we couldn't, so we did it anyway. Let me give you another example. The sign says, don't touch wet paint. Really? You know what? They were right. That is totally wet. I had no Why did you touch it? Because they said I couldn't. The sign on your neighbor's yard. It's all pristine and clipped and perfect. Stay off the grass. Really? All right. What are you going to do now? I mean, now you're on the grass. And now you want to take the sign and put it in somebody else's yard. You want to take your dog over there and just Why why do we do that? Why? why? This is first service people do this, not third, but let's just say, why? I'm kidding. What I'm saying to you is this. There's something within the human nature that rebels against the law, thinks that it's going to get away with it. It's the flesh. (laughs) But the law is good, but it can activate sin. But then there is the law that it brings, actually brings about death if you try to live according to it. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, it deceived me and it killed me. Again, Paul, Paul now gives a very candid description of his own life, a snapshot, if you would, of his own life before Christ. Paul was a Pharisee. In writing to the Philippians, he said, I was a Pharisee among the Pharisees. I excelled all my contemporaries. I was a Hebrew among the Hebrews. And concerning the law, 613 commandments, I kept them. I was blameless, he thought, until he really got into the real meaning and intention of the law. And he, he realized, actually, he was covetous. He had violated God's law. And if the Bible says if you violate one part of the law, you're guilty of all the law. He was a breaker of God's law. And so he tried to maintain it, tried to keep and fulfill all the requirements that had been established, but he couldn't live under the burden of it. It said it killed me. I thought I could. I was deceived in my own self righteousness. I thought I could be moral enough to attain righteousness. I failed. It killed me, in other words. And it always does. If you try to be made righteous in the sight of God by your own efforts, you're you're deceived and you'll be killed in the sense that you you can't bear that burden. It'll crush you. And Paul admits that at one time he tried, but he failed so miserably. He couldn't keep the law because he began to understand the real intention of the law. Remember Jesus had to define that for the religious leaders? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard that it's been said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother without a cause, you've committed murder in your heart. You've already violated God's law inside. You haven't acted on it yet, but inside you have broken God's law. Jesus said, you've heard that it's been said. The law has been taught. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, the authority of the law, the intention of the law, if you look at a woman and you lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery In your heart. That's where it starts, in other words. The law just isn't something that is exterior. It is something that goes to the very interior of man, and all of us have violated it. Every single one of us has broken God's law. I always marvel at the person that says, I just live by the Ten Commandments. That's how I live out there. It's Ten Commandments. Really? Name me the first one. I don't, you know, something about, you know, you don't know what it is. And also tell me where it's found in the Bible. I'm pretty sure... It's toward the front. You know, you you don't even know what it is, and you can't name it. But it's always interesting because you ask the person, do you really live by the Ten Commandments? you think that you're going to get to heaven, and you're going to stand before God, and he's going to say, okay, why should I let you in? I kept the Ten Commandments. Really? Have you ever lied? I just have have a very um, excited imagination. I don't lie. I just haven't. No, you lied. We've all broken God's law. You understand. Paul said, I died under the weight of the law. I could not keep it. He also tells us that the law reveals the magnitude of sin and the sinfulness of it. Look at verse 12. Therefore, the law, it's holy. And the commandment, holy, just, and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But here's the problem. Sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death within me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. To paraphrase Paul saying, there is again nothing wrong with the law. It was my own sinful heart that looked at that and violated it. Paul established the law was just. It is holy. It is good. He's showing the awfulness of sin in the way that sin can take something good like God's law and pervert it and twist it into something to further man's evil intentions. That's always what sin does, by the way. It can take something beautiful, something like the loveliness of love, and turn it into something depraved like lust. Sin takes things that are good and holy and just and turns them into something that are wicked and perverse. Sin undermines the very purpose of God's law. It reveals the awfulness of sin. So what then is the ultimate purpose of God's law? What is the reason for it? Why have we been given it? How does it apply to us? What is the greatest benefit of God's law to us? Paul tells us when he wrote to the Galatians, he talked about the purpose of the law. And he tells us that the law had its purpose and that the purpose, this is in Galatians chapter three, verse 24. He says, the law was our tutor, our teacher to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. That's the purpose of the law. The law, when I look at the law, I realize God's standard. I realize that I've fallen short. I realize I could never measure up. So what happens next? I'm lost. I can't do it. I know what the standard is, but I can't keep it. What does that do? It's used as a tutor, as a teacher, and it drives me to grace. It drives me to Christ. And when I come to Christ, I realize He did for me what I could never do for myself. He died. He fulfilled the law in his life. He fulfilled the requirement of the law in his death. And I am now in Christ. I too have died. My sin died with him, buried with him. I'm now raised in the newness of life. I am in a completely new relationship. I am not held down any longer by the law. I am liberated by his love and I can serve him in the newness of the spirit. The law has its purpose. The law drives me to Jesus. And that is where I find salvation, in Christ alone. Amen? That's the purpose of the law, guys. That's the intention. As Paul points out here, there is nothing wrong with God's law. It is good. It is perfect. It is right. The problem is with me. So God sets the standard that I might be driven to the Savior and that I might be saved. And I can't think of anything, again, in light of the context of today, more fitting, more beneficial than to take communion. It's like the exclamation point on everything we just read. Now I understand. When I partake of those elements of communion, I'm being reminded what Jesus did, what he accomplished for me. And I'm so grateful. Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. Don't forget. Don't try to come under the law and think that you can be made righteous. Listen, I desire to keep God's law because of his grace. Grace is far more motivating than the law ever was. His love is far more motivating than the law ever could be. Folks, today as we prepare our hearts to take communion, let me say this to you. Communion is for the believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, as often as you take this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. This is for the Christian. If you're not a Christian yet, if you're still in the flesh, You're still very much alive to the old sinful life. This isn't for you. But I have a suggestion for you today. Why not receive Christ? Why not repent of your sin? Why not agree with what the Bible says that you're a sinner too? You violated God's law, whether in the intention of your heart or in the outward of your actions, but Jesus died for you. He paid the price for your sins. And if you will trust in him, for salvation. If you will repent of sin, the Bible says he'll save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call on his name, he'll save you. And then, then take communion because it'll mean something to you. It'll remind you of what Christ has done. So let's prepare our hearts as the men will come forward in a moment and we'll prepare. Father, we do thank you this morning for the privilege and the opportunity to be reminded of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Where you died, you took our place. You paid it in full. You were forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. We thank you that God so loved the world that you gave. Hmm. Lord, I just pray in this moment right now as we end our time together that we would just be overwhelmed once again by what we have in Christ, that the memory of the sacrifice of Jesus would just fill this sanctuary through the work of the Spirit today. Lord, we don't want to go through the motions of just taking these elements. We want to think about and really consider All that it means. So meet us here. Jesus' name.